I hope you are as excited to be here as I am. I love the opportunity to preach and to jump into the series uh, as we've been going through the Gospel of Luke. I love the opportunity to jump in and to try and fill uh, the shoes of Tim Evans. We will look forward uh, to him being back next week. And uh, he will continue moving forward. And he's kind of told uh, the staff, uh, we talked about Wednesday, where he's going and, and what he has looking forward to. And uh, just to let you know, uh, Tim's excited about the sermon when he gets back. And so that's always the case. But he was certainly very anxious to be able to get back with you next week and to be able to look at um, the, and finish up chapter 17 of Luke. And that's where we're going to be. We're going to be in Luke chapter 17. Uh, and because of the nature of everything that has to be covered, because this section of Scripture, verses 11 through 19, is jam-packed. It is filled to the brim with things that I feel like we need to cover and talk about. So with that being the case, we're going to go ahead and jump into the text. I'm going to read verses 11 through 19, and then we're going to go ahead and just dig right in. So let me read it to you, Luke chapter 17, beginning in verse 11. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee, and as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. And then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do love you. And we do praise you. Because God, we recognize that you can do amazing things. And you do accomplish amazing things. And Father, the most amazing thing is the reality that you sent your Son, Jesus, not just to, not just to make us feel good, not just to give us joys while we're here on earth, God, but you sent your Son, Jesus, to save sinners. And Father, we see that beautifully displayed. In these verses, we see your hand of salvation. We see your hand in power. We see a miracle. We actually see ten of them. And we see that the greatest miracle has less to do with sickness and body and voice and standing in society and culture, the greatest miracle has to do with the work of your Son and the salvation of those who will never deserve it, but Father, who can beautifully and miraculously claim it and call on it. I pray that you would use me to communicate your truth this morning. And Father, when we leave here, we would leave understanding this passage greater. And Father, we would leave as better disciples of yours. Or, if you're so pleased that even today, this morning, you would save those in this room who don't know you. And it's in the name of your Son, Jesus, and for his sake, I do ask these things. Amen. 
So in way of introduction, there are a couple of things that we need to look at in order to understand the context of what's going on here. We need to look at the timing of Christ's journey, and we do need to look at the disease of leprosy. I'm sure that we've all heard of leprosy before, but we're going to take a deeper look into it today, and we're also going to look at the timing of Christ's journey. Now, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. In the time that we see him coming up and these lepers yelling to him with a loud voice. He's on his way to Jerusalem. He's on his way there for the last time. He is on his way, and he's going to be crucified when he gets to Jerusalem. He's going to be killed. But he's on his way, and Luke 9, that was read earlier, gives us the context for us. It tells us that while he was on his way to Jerusalem, he had set his focus there, that he even looked to pass through Samaria, and the Samaritans wanted nothing to do with him, he was on his way to Jerusalem, and there was racism in Jerusalem, and there was racism in Samaria, and they didn't like each other. And so Jesus is on his way, and he's going to be killed. It takes him about five months to get there. And Luke records five miracles while he's on his way to Jerusalem. And we've seen three of those miracles. Today is the fourth miracle, and then one will come later on in Luke 18. He's going to arrive in Jerusalem in uh, Luke's account in uh, the 19th chapter. But he cast out uh, the demon who was making a man mute in Luke 11. He healed a disabled woman in Luke 13. He healed a man with dropsy in Luke 14. Like I said, today is the fourth miracle where he cleansed ten lepers. And then in Luke 18, he's going to heal uh, two blind men. Um, Luke only focuses on one blind man, but Matthew's account tells us there were actually two there. And there's more than just five miracles that have happened. It is very likely, and there's, there's a little bit dispute whether it's right before this account or right after this account, but it is very likely that Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. And the line has been drawn in the sand. You will see some things differently here than you do see in other places. When, uh, in, when Luke records a miracle of Jesus, there's times when Jesus will say, tell no one of what you've seen or experienced. He doesn't say that here because the line's been drawn in the sand. He's on his way to be killed on a cruel cross so that he can be a sacrifice for my sins, for the sins of all who would trust in him. The line's been drawn in the sands so that not only will he die, but he will rise from the dead and he will accomplish all that he has set himself to do. In our text today, he's going to deal, and he does deal with a disease that he's already proven he is the master over. Jesus already in the book of Luke has proven that he has mastery over this disease of leprosy. If you want, I'll, I'll read it to you, but you can flip back to Luke chapter 5. And in Luke chapter 5, verses 12 through 16, Jesus deals with leprosy there. It says, while he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded for a proof to them. But now even more, the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he withdrew to desolate places and pray. There's a few differences I want you to notice as I just read his healing in Luke 5. And we've also heard the healing in Luke 17. There's a few differences. In today's passage, there are ten lepers. There, were, there was only one in Luke 5. 
So take the miracle of Luke 5 and multiply it by 10. Here he doesn't touch them. Where in Luke 5 it says he stretched out his hand and put it on the leper. And here, again, he, he doesn't tell these lepers not to say anything to anyone. He doesn't say, don't go telling what happened. And the event here, the reason for the differences and the distinction here is because this event is for a different reason. Luke has a reason for writing things in the order he does. And some of it is chronological. A lot of it is chronological. But there are times when he is stressing a point. And the point here, I think, is different than the point of Luke 5. In Luke 5, it's showcasing Jesus' mastery over even something as awful as leprosy. Here, I do think we see, again, kind of a living, breathing, walking and talking parable like what we saw in Luke chapter 9 when Jesus told people what it would cost to follow after him. So here I think we actually see a living and breathing parable that's put on display for us here and for the disciples and those who saw it then. So that's the timing. That's the distinction of what's going on today. But also, we need to dive in just a little bit. And I don't want to be grotesque because it is a grotesque disease. We need to look at what leprosy is. Obviously, or not maybe not obviously, but probably very often, we've heard of the disease of leprosy. And it's something that's commonplace in Bible studies. But what is leprosy? What do you know about leprosy? Probably most people in here, what they know about leprosy is that things fall off. Fingers, noses, ears fall off when you have leprosy. It's a terrible disease. There is a leading expert on leprosy. His name is Dr. Paul Brand. And he has done maybe the most extensive work on what we have today. Uh, it's not called leprosy today, it's called Hansen's disease. The thing about leprosy that's interesting to note is that, yes, fingers fall off and noses fall off, ears will go, your skin turns kind of this ashen white. There is a nastiness to the way of it, but Leprosy is, it's not the falling off the fingers. It's not, it's not the stuff falling off. That's not what leprosy does. What leprosy is mainly is an anesthetic. It takes away, it removes pain. It takes away the senses that you have, the warning signs that your body gives that says, I'm hurting. It takes that away. You might say, well, why is that so bad? What does that have to do with falling off of things? Like well, in Dr. Brand's research, we know that in 99% of the cases of Hansen's disease, the only thing that that disease does is numbs the extremities, fingers, ears, noses. And what you do because your fingers, because your feet because your body goes so numb, you essentially destroy your body. You don't realize the damage that you're doing to your own self. The destruction follows solely because the warning system of pain is gone and you destroy your own limbs. Dr. Brand talked about Several scenarios, stories where one person uh, would reach into burning charcoal for a potato. He would pull it out and he would have no feeling of pain at all. I mean, obviously you can imagine the destruction that that would cause to your hand. But they didn't recognize it. He said that in one instance, a person with Hansen's disease worked all day 
using a shovel that had a nail that was sticking out of it. He tore his hand completely to shreds. In one very, very interesting story, uh, he was trying to open a rusty padlock, one in which the key had actually rusted in the padlock itself. And try and try as he might, Dr. Brand nor any of the other men could turn the key to open the padlock. And then this child, a malnourished little boy, comes walking up and says, let me try. The boy reaches up, takes the key, and turns it, opening the padlock. They go in, and Dr. Brand is confused as to why this child could display so much strength when no grown man could. And it was not until he saw the blood trail on the ground and examined the child's finger that he realized the child had completely torn his finger all the way through tendons to the bone, the key, to turn the key. In one instance also, a man would wash his face every morning with scalding hot water, and he actually went blind because he couldn't feel how hot the water was on his face. Leprosy is a terrible disease. It's an awful, awful disease. It is incredibly contagious. It could wipe out entire populations. People would catch it and their skin would start to reflect the things that was going on in their body. And so in order to stop the spread of leprosy, God Himself in Leviticus 13, let me read it to you. In Leviticus 13, God Himself instituted that people should be taken out of the population who had leprosy. Uh, Leviticus 13, I'll read verses 45 and 46. It says, The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, Unclean! Unclean! He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. If you had leprosy, not only did you go through the torment of destroying your own body, but you also were to live outside of the camp. You were to live away from loved ones and friends and family. You were to be isolated. The only people you could associate with were other lepers because you can't give them leprosy. They've already got it. And so when we see the lepers here in verse 11, it says on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And then verse 12, and as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance. When they're standing at a distance, it's because they're following the law that was laid out before them. Don't go near anyone. They stand afar and they yell out with a loud voice. And many... Jews, for certain, actually believed that if you had leprosy, it was a divine judgment upon you from God. We do hear stories of that. Uh, Elisha, uh, God instructed Elisha to give leprosy as a punishment, as a judgment. But they took that one instance and they, they put it across the board. If, if you had leprosy, obviously that was God's judgment upon you. So that's our introduction, the timing of Christ's journey, the disease of leprosy, and hopefully you get a sampling now of what's about to come down the turnpike. So let's see what happens. In Luke 17, 12 and 13, they're standing afar, and they shout out their voices loudly saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on 
us. And that's, that's interesting. They were supposed to go around. They were supposed to yell, unclean, 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 everywhere they go. And it was supposed to keep people at a distance. But here they raise their voices again. Leprosy also did. Hansen's disease also does affect the voice. And so your voice becomes very raspy, becomes very fatigued. And so for them to raise their voices was not an easy thing. Them shouting at him from afar, trying to get his attention, that's something that's not easy. They recognize something about this man, Jesus. They lift up their voices. They cry, Master. Or uh, the Greek term there is epistata. Luke is the only writer who uses that word. He's the only one who uses that Greek term. And it has the tone in it of commander or someone who has authority over others or over this thing and so no doubt these 10 lepers when they go up to him they had heard about Jesus they had heard of his miracles they know that the only place the only person who can give them healing the only person who can do something about this is this guy who back in Luke 5 he went up to a leper and touched him He didn't get leprosy. Instead, leprosy was banished from that person. And they shout out to him, Master! Commander! The only person who has authority over the plight that I'm in right now, to you, I'm raising my voice, I'm talking to you. Jesus, Master. There was only one place they could turn, only one person they could turn to, and it was Jesus. And they cry out, and they say, have mercy on us. Be compassionate. Have pity on us. We are unclean, and we need to be clean. Remember back in Leviticus 13 how I said they were to go around shouting, unclean, unclean, unclean? The idea of being unclean is something that's carried all throughout the Old Testament. You are made unclean if you touch a dead body. You're made unclean if you uh, touch blood or if you yourself are bleeding. You're made unclean ceremonially if you have a sickness like leprosy. You're made unclean through a lot of ways. And so this idea of being unclean was felt all across the world. And here they're shouting out, not unclean, unclean, but Lord, have mercy on us. And obviously, they're unclean. Obviously, they're lepers, but they know there's something about this Jesus. They know there's something about Him that's different. Every time Jesus encounters an unclean person, every time he encounters an unclean person in Luke, he goes and he does something about it. In Luke 5, we read it already, he went and touched a leper. He went and placed his hand on him. The thing about it is, is if you touch something unclean or if you touch an unclean person, you yourself would have that uncleanliness spread to you. So Jesus going and touching a leper, that was a big deal. You don't touch lepers because then you yourself will be unclean. But Jesus goes up and Luke 5 touches the leper and he doesn't become unclean. Rather, the leper gets cleansed. In Luke 8, he meets a woman who had been bleeding unclean. She touches him. And Jesus is not unclean because of the touch of this woman but rather she is made well. In Matthew 9, Jesus walks into the room with a dead girl and takes her hand, unclean. And he tells her to get up. Jesus will walk into any situation and no stain of sin, no uncleanliness will ever touch him. But that stain of sin, that uncleanliness on them, it will be banished from the room. That's the nature of this master. 
of this Jesus. And by the way, there's no one else in all of Scripture who does that. There's, there's one place, this is not in my notes, but there's one place where when we see the uncleanliness being spread to everybody and everyone being impacted by the uncleanliness of, of these things and the way of sin, when they see that, every time someone touches an unclean thing, they're unclean as well until they go and they get the ceremonies to be made clean again. But there's one instance where it's different. It's in the throne room of God, Isaiah himself has a vision in the throne room of God. And Isaiah sees God high and lifted up. He falls down on his knees. He says, woe is me, for I am unclean. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst the people of unclean lips. And the seraphim who are flying around, one of them goes and grabs a coal from the altar of God, and he goes and he touches that coal on the, lip of, on the lips of Isaiah. And in the reader's mind, at first you've got to be thinking, don't do that. That's a holy and righteous coal in the altar of God. Don't put it on the unclean lips of Isaiah. You're going to contaminate it. But something unbelievable happens, and you see that the coal doesn't get contaminated, rather it cleanses Isaiah's lips. I think a case can be made that Christ is the cleansing coal of God. That's for a different sermon. That was a freebie. That's not my notes. But with Jesus, he looks at them and the cleansing comes. Verse 14, it's as simple as this. When he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priest. And as they went, they were cleansed. They were prescribed if you had leprosy, you were to be an outcast, but there were times when maybe the leprosy would get better. Maybe you would be healed. It would be an incredible, wonderful thing. And then they could go to the priest, and there was a, a, a lot of things that the priest would do. He would inspect the person who had leprosy. There would be... Um, there will be sacrifices made. You can read all about it in Leviticus. Cleansing came. And notice what Jesus does not say. He doesn't say, you are healed, I cleanse you. He doesn't make a big show of it. He just says, go. And you'll have your miracle. The cleansing's going to happen. The miracle will take place. You will see it. And I do think it's interesting that we're couched, this, this passage is couched in between Luke chapter 16, which Tim just went over a few weeks ago. Luke 16, verses 25 through 31. You'll remember it's the story of uh, the rich man and Lazarus. And besides all this, this is beginning in verse 26, or uh, in verse 25. Let me uh, go to verse 25. Of chapter 16. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from here, from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, this is the rich man who's in anguish, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, send Lazarus to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. That is immediately before this passage. In other words, signs and wonders, even when a dead man raises to life, that is not power unto salvation. That's not what saves you. That's not what will bring you from death into life. Signs and wonders are great, but they will not save you. And then right after this, in verse 20 of chapter 17, it says, being asked by the Pharisees, when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. In other words, guys, you're looking for something to be seen. You're looking for some sort of miracle. You're looking for some sort of sign. You're looking 
for wonders, and yet the real wonder is not in a miracle like healing lepers. The real miracle is in salvation. And so he says to them, just simply go to the priest. Show, them, show yourself before the priest. Because Christ has come to bring salvation. He's come, he's got his eyes set to Jerusalem. His task is before him. He will die on a cross. He will take the sins of those who will trust him. He will give righteousness to his own. He will be raised on the third day, he will ascend into heaven. His eyes are fixed on that moment. And so he's saying, if all you want is a miracle, if all you want is health, go. It's yours. Go. And that's what they do. They go. And this miracle is so understated. This miracle is just almost, almost flippantly talked about. Go. The miracle's not the big deal anyway. The death, burial, and resurrection of Christ is the big deal. See, the disciples didn't even see it. But while the lepers are going, they're cleansed. That's all it says. And it probably looked a little funny because... They didn't notice it on themselves at first, I imagine, as they're walking the ten of them to the priest. I imagine one of them looks at the other and says, Hey, you look different. And then the one looks back, So do you. And they all start looking around each other. And then they look at their hands and they look at their bodies and they start inspecting themselves. And they realize that they've been cleansed. They recognize, He did it. The Master did it. He didn't put his hand on us. He just said it. And here we are. We're healed. Assumedly, the disciples believed that they were healed, but they didn't see it. They didn't know that they were healed. They didn't know that they had received mercy. And again, I want to stress this. It's because this story is not here so that we marvel at signs or wonders, or miracles. This story is not here so that we look at the cleansing of ten lepers and go, wow, wow, look at that. No, it's almost purposefully understated because all of these healings and all of the things that go on here, this healing is pointing to the healer. The miracles are pointing to the miraculous Son of God. Throughout Jesus' ministry, people had misunderstood His miracles. There was the feeding of the 5,000 in John 6, and we know that when they were fed, they were so happy about it, it said they wanted to take Jesus and force Him to be king. Why? Because He's the God of our stomachs. He's the God of our bellies. Let's have that guy to be our king. They misunderstood the miracle. Jesus, at the end of His life, is stood before Herod, and Herod looks at him, and in Luke 23 it says that Herod is just wanting to see a magic show. He's just wanting to see signs and wonders. He knows Jesus can do them. Everybody knows Jesus can do these signs and wonders, and yet Herod had no belief or faith in Christ. He just wanted to see a show. Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 through 40. I want to read this to you. It says this, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. They want signs. They want wonders. But they misunderstand them. They don't recognize that the signs of the wonders are pointing to the wonderful Son of God. They just want to see a show. And let me remind you, 
it has either just happened or it's about to happen that Lazarus himself is going to be raised from the dead. This is not about the ten lepers. It's not about their cleansing. It's about something deeper. Signs were given to prove that Christ had the power to do what he came for. Why did he do them if that's not the point? Because they showed us who he was. In Luke 5, verses 20 through 25, we hear this. This is uh, the Lord talking. He says, And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk? And let me ask you right now, just to ponder in your own mind, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or rise and walk? I will submit it to you that both are impossible with anybody in this room. He says, why do you marvel that I say your sins are forgiven you? What's more impossible? Your sins are forgiven, or rise and walk, and eat both in terms of the Pharisees, in terms of everyone there. Both of those things are impossible. And then he says this, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Why were the signs and wonders given? If they're not the point, it was because it was pointing to Jesus and who he was and what he was going to do on the cross and how he was going to be raised So this sign is not the point of the story. So what is the point? Well, let me examine the lepers for just a moment. See, every leper was an outcast. Every single leper of those ten was an outcast. Remember, they were put out of the camp. Outside of their homes, outside of their families. They were outcast. And these ten people who were afflicted with this disease, they weren't lepers anymore. As they were walking, they were healed, they were cleansed, and nine of them were going to the priest. Nine of them were making their beeline straight to him. But one of them is found to be an even greater outcast. Because there were ten lepers, and one of them in the group was a Samaritan. We know that because of what Jesus says later on. There was a Samaritan in the group, and it is worthwhile noting that a Samaritan would not be allowed in the temple. He could go to the court of Gentiles. That would be about as far as he could get. But he couldn't go into the temple. He couldn't go have the same rituals, the same sacrifices. So you have ten lepers, and all of them are outcasts, and yet one is seen to be a greater outcast. One doesn't fit. Now, they were fine walking around and talking you know, with each other and hanging out in groups when, it was, when they had leprosy, but now that those distinctions are gone, well, here is a Samaritan, and he is far greater of an outcast than I was as a leper before. There was only one place this Samaritan could go. Or only one place he was going to go, I may, maybe should say, his healing led him to Jesus. For the others, their healing was a way to fulfill their desire, to return to the normal, to return to the thing that we'd always had. I'll make this brief note and not, this is not my notes either, so i flying a little bit out of the notes. How many times have we heard, I can't wait to return to normal with this COVID disease and virus? Perhaps we should be content to find ourselves an even greater outcast from the world than trying to return to a normal living with them. For the nine, it was a way to get back to normal. But for the Samaritan, Guys, it literally bankrupted him. What do I mean by that? The fellowship, the friendship, the commonality that he had, all of a sudden because of this man Jesus, it took all of those things away. He couldn't walk into Jerusalem with these men. 
He couldn't go back to their normal lives. No, it bankrupted everything about his life that he was living. There was only one place he was going to go. There was only one place he could look. It was to the man who had done the healing himself. It was to Jesus Christ. And this Samaritan, all he wanted was Christ. See, miracles did the same thing as the parables. Matthew 13 14 says, you will indeed hear, but never understand. And this is what Jesus is talking about, why he was speaking in parables. You'll hear, but never understand. In other words, if you don't know who Christ is, you'll hear a parable, but you won't understand it. And he goes further. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. I think parables and miracles were done in such a way that Christ was separating out those who didn't understand from those who it drove to Him. So the Samaritan immediately turns. He doesn't have to be told what to do. His association with them, with the other nine, is done If they aren't going to Jesus, well, he's done with them because that's the only place he wants to go. And this is what he does. He falls on his face. He praised Jesus. And it says that on his going, in verse 16, or excuse me, in verse 15, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet. He's praising God on his way. And then when he sees God in the flesh, he falls down on his face and worships him. This is a posture of worship. Understand there were ways to bow before people that didn't honor them as God, but to fall face first upon the ground That's a posture of worship for a deity. Perhaps he had had some prior knowledge of who this Jesus was. Perhaps he had been one of the Samaritans who heard the Samaritan woman talking about Jesus from John 4. If you remember the story, the woman at the well, she was convinced that Jesus was the Messiah, the Christ. And she goes and she says to her fellow Samaritans, come and see this man who told me everything I have ever done. Can this be the Christ. Perhaps he was one of the ones who heard that the Christ was walking among us. Perhaps he just knew that no one except God could have healed him. Either way, he worships Jesus. And he recognizes this miracle is not the end of the things, of the relationship I have with Jesus, but this miracle is just the beginning of my desire to be with him. So he falls and he worships And then I love how, where it goes from there. Then Jesus answered. He gives three rhetorical questions. Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? And did only this foreigner return? So were not ten cleansed? And the obvious answer there is yes. Ten were cleansed. The disciples may not have known it at the time. They might have assumed it. But if not for the Samaritan, they wouldn't have seen, oh yeah, they're cleansed. Where were not ten cleansed? Yeah, there were ten cleansed. Then where are the nine? You see, the nine had seen, but they had not perceived. They had gotten their Ability to return to normal. But they didn't understand their need to turn to Christ. Their suffering had driven them to Jesus. It was certainly a dire situation. They they were in agony. They have leprosy. It's the same kind of idea 
in their suffering, they were driven to Jesus. It's the same kind of mindset that there's really no atheist on a crashing airplane. In your suffering, in your dire situation, you know who you turn to? You always turn to God. And they expected, they wanted God to fix their difficulty. How many times do we hear today that we want God to fix our problems and to give us a life that is abundant and full? And what they mean by that is we want a life that is happy and pleasing. They expected God to fix their difficulty. They wanted it. We expect God to fix our difficulty. They hoped to return to normal. And they missed the point of the miracle. You see, they loved the healing above the healer. The third rhetorical question, did only this foreigner return? The Samaritan was in their company, but he didn't belong for a number of reasons. And at once, at once, the healing of those ten revealed a startling difference between this Samaritan and the other nine. But the most startling difference had less to do with ethnicity and it had more to do with what did the work of God turn you to? Did it turn you to the life you knew or did it turn you to Christ? And this Samaritan came to Christ. This foreigner to the other nine saw the miracle and he perceived his Lord. Truly, He was a foreigner. And isn't it interesting to note that both in 1 Peter and in Hebrews, those who are in Christ are called strangers, exiles, and pilgrims. Jesus explains the real issue. He brings it home for us. Verse 19, he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. It says here, uh, I'm reading from the ESV translation. He tells this worshiping Samaritan to rise and go because his faith has made him well. But the word... Well, let me, let me back up a bit. I always thought it was interesting when I read this um, that Jesus is distinguishing this one leper, this one Samaritan, this one returning. He's distinguishing him by telling him his faith did the exact same thing that it did to the other nine. I always thought it was interesting. Why did he say that? Rise, go your way, your faith has made you well. Well, what was the point? They were made well too. What's the point there? Well, the word that is said there, the word there in in the Greek is the word sissokin. The word that's translated your faith has made you well is the Greek word sissokin, and it occurs another place in the Gospel of Luke. It occurs in Luke chapter 7, verses 48 through 50. Let me read it to you. It's the same word, same word. Um, You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, Her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And here it is. And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. It's the same word. Your faith has saved you. 
Whereas over here, it's your faith has made you well. Now, I, I, I love this translation of the Bible very, very much. But I think that the better translation here, rise, go your way, your faith has saved you. There's a difference. And what Jesus is pointing at is that you can look for signs and wonders all day long and at the end of it, if all you've gotten is some sort of sign and wonder, the best you have to live for is your normal life. But you see, for those who have turned to the Savior, for those who have turned to Christ, Oh, the miracle is so much greater and so much deeper, so much more profound, so much more all-encompassing. If you have turned to the Savior, then you don't look for a normal life. No, you look for a life that is saved in Christ. So what is Christ saying here? I think He's saying, Several things. But one thing I think is very interesting to note. As he is looking to the cross. As he's looking to the resurrection and the ascension. As he's looking to finishing the task that's set before him by his father. I think what he's telling them and what this living and breathing parable is showing us is don't be satisfied with a message that tells you if you come to Christ, you'll have a happier life, a healthier life, a normal life, a life that's blessed. Don't be satisfied with anything other than the reality that if you come to Christ, He will save you from your sins. He will give you a righteousness that is different than that of anything in the world. And He will save you. Let's pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do love You and we praise You and we thank You for this incredible story that's not even about lepers. Lord, there are lepers there. There is sickness there, and there is healing there. But Father, we thank You that we have a salvation that's greater than signs. We have a hope that is greater than healing. We have a Savior who is greater than our sin. And Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here who has not put their faith and their trust in You, that You would make today the day of their salvation. And Father, if there's anyone here who has been deceived into thinking that this Christian life is here to enhance our life out in the world, that Father, they would turn to You and see You for who You are truly. And they would praise and worship You as the God of their salvation. It's in your Son's name, Jesus, I ask these things and for His sake. Amen.